permaculture, agroforestry, and sort of systems thinking in some way fundamentally altered the way that I understand change. What does it mean to approach business in this way? Like, what does it mean to have this type of relationship with suppliers? What does that mean? What does that look like? What could it look like? This is what we do. A show about how we, you and me, can have a positive impact on the world, live with integrity, and embrace the complex questions of our time without losing neither ourselves, our minds, nor our hope in the process. My name is Lucy Kamara, and I'm your host. Let's begin. Hi, I'm Lucy Kamara, and I'm the creator of this space. In this podcast, we explore the many different shapes sustainability can take. We look at the big human challenges, namely discrimination, violence, the environmental crisis, the loneliness epidemic, the search for meaning through an intersectional and interconnected lens. Intersectionality started as a legal tool theorized by Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw to support black women victims of a particular kind of sexist racism and racist sexism. From this concept, we can now interrogate how race, gender, class, physical abilities and other aspects of our identities shape our experience of the world and inform the work we do to protect what we love. You will find resources to learn more about intersectionality in the show notes. This week, I interviewed Sundra Essien, the owner of Isangs, a wonderful hair and body care shop, atelier, and playful space in Copenhagen. Sundra was born and raised in Texas with a black American mother and a Nigerian father. Together we trace her story from her loving and experimental childhood, her career as a corporate and human rights lawyer, her work with permaculture in South America, and finally how all of this resulted in her opening e-signs. We talk about representation, freedom, system thinking, and making an impact. As always, please let me know what you thought about the episode. Send me a DM on Instagram at whatwedopod.com. Or you can connect with me through my website, www.lucyoutthere.com. I would love to hear from you. Take care of yourself and of others. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any new episodes. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Sundra Essien. Hi, Sundra. Hi. Excited to be here. I'm so happy to have you. Um, on the podcast. This is really exciting. Um, I've been following your work for that maybe seven years. Oh, wow. Okay. Nice. Yeah, that's what I was telling you. Like the last time I've been uh, in your store, I think it was 2016. Okay. Yeah. Um, something like that. So yeah, the neighborhood has changed. The neighborhood has changed. The shop has changed. Uh, it's always an evolving project and the neighborhood has is also always an evolving project, apparently. Um, and then, of course, that was pre-corona, so the entire city landscape has changed, and a lot of shops 
have closed down in the area. Our neighbors have, have changed out, but, um, but we're still here. My name is Sundra. I'm the founder of Sings. My, I mean, my story is a bit of a, I think like everyone's story. It's no, there's no linear path to how I got here. Um, but I studied in university. Well, first I studied business and social entrepreneurship, and I've been really interested in production and different models of production and how that impacts the broader world around us. And my very first business uh, that I tried to start was working with textile manufacturers in Nigeria, which is where half of my family still lives. Um, and that was just a, a, a spectacular failure for a lot of reasons. I just, I was young, had a lot of growing to do, had a lot of things to understand about trade and working on different continents. Um, I was living in the U.S. at the time, which is where I was born and where I was raised. Um, so that was just a lesson in maybe what not to do. How old were you when you started your business in Nigeria? Um, I must have been 20. And, but you started it from the U.S. or did you no, live in Nigeria? No, it was from Nigeria? the U.S. This is when okay. I, when I was finishing business school. Mm. And so I was, it was sort of a big project of mine. Strangely enough, I had no intention at that time of maybe even having kids, but it was working with maternity clothes because I thought that was a market that was really ripe for being reinvented. And I wanted to work with traditional textiles and um in Nigeria so i thought it was a nice way to kind of bridge sort of those two um industries but also bring something that that i thought yeah was ready to be reinvented and a space where we could use traditional textiles to create something interesting um and fun and different from what was already on the market um a lot of the problems that i ran into were just like logistics problems everything from shipping to coordinating to um, and then also the basics of, of running a business that involves production on multiple continents. I mean, a lot of it was just sort of jumping into something really naively, like, this will be great. And then getting overwhelmed with the details of what it actually entails. So um wasn't a mistake, just a big learning experience. What is the biggest thing you learned? Um, I learned so many things, but I think a lot of it was... One of the things I learned was actually about uh, a lesson in trust. I was really young at the time, and I, I found it really hard to for people to take me seriously, to raise money, and sort of really understanding how people see me and understanding at that point the value of credentials as a way to get your foot in the door. And that was one of the reasons I went to law school. And it was almost like I used to say, like, oh, if I become a lawyer, people will trust me. And sort of jokingly, sort of not jokingly, because it it sort of carries a bit of weight, even in industries unrelated to law. It just kind of is a bit of a badge of like you've you've done something, you have a certain level of access or intellect. Oftentimes, it's not actually reflective of people's actual intellect or ability to do things, but it's just a perception of it. And I and I sort of it became I became very aware of how you're able to move in the world based on people's perceptions of what you're able to do. And you can gain that perception by having certain credentials from certain places. And and that was just a lesson in navigating the world and and intentionally manipulating sounds a bit uh, negative, but intentionally being proactive in designing the impressions that I want people to have of me when they meet me. 
I think that's relatable on just a human level, yeah. but also from a black woman's perspective. Yeah. And would you say that's something you've learned with this first business venture? Or was that conscious in you from a younger age? You grew up in Texas. I grew right? up in Texas. Um, I mean, I think... I think as someone that grows up in a context where you're a minority in all different space, in all different ways, like I, I'm, my dad is Nigerian, my mom is Black American, I grew up in Texas, I was pretty much always one of only or one of a few Black, uh, black people at school, at extracurricular activities, women, and so you're African... <laughs> African-American. So it's just kind of navigating these identities. I think everyone who grows up in spaces where you're constantly having to put on and take off different identities, you have some, at least, even if it's not conscious, some subconscious awareness of the need for that and the value of being able to to put on and take off identities when it's necessary as a survival um, mechanism. But I think at that time, it it really dawned on me in a very sort of concrete way that I could control those impressions by taking on the veneer of things that people use as shortcuts to determine whether or not you're in the in-group or the out-group. And it's also allowed me to, when I sort of decide I want to present in this way, I want to come show up at my law firm with my big afro, riding a bicycle. It's an intentional choice. It's not just like I come up and I don't know what that means. I understand very sort of viscerally and very consciously what each of the things that I do signal. And then I intentionally signal those things. And I carry that through also my business here. Nothing is an accident. The music we play, the outfits I wear, the, you know, the hair, you know, how my hair is done. Everything is intentional to signal sort of what's okay, what's not okay, what's in and what's not in. And also as an intentional counter to what people typically see as what should be in and what should not be in. It's quite powerful to imagine you being so young and directly have that strong intention because you could have wanted to assimilate, relax your hair and like try to like fit the mold of what a lawyer would look like or a businesswoman or whatever. But from the get-go, you were like, this is me and I want to be in this space and show you what someone who looks like me can do in this space. Exactly. And that's, that's quite, that's quite inspiring, I think. Yeah. And I think sometimes I think we actually get it wrong. We think that these are the signals that people are picking up on and, and evaluating us by, and those are not actually the signals. And I think oftentimes we get those, that there's a miscommunication there. Sometimes we say like, okay, this outfit or this hair when it's actually some more subtle dog whistle that people are using to navigate these contexts to determine who's in the in-group and the out-group. Interesting. And I think when you're not in some of those groups, you don't understand the signals because it's almost like navigating a foreign language. We see sort of the outside veneer of like, okay, the people that are lawyers here, they are white men who wear these types of suits. So that must be the signal, but that's not actually the signal. There's something, some other language, some other speak because they've gone to the same schools. They Mm -hmm. interact in a different way. And I think when you can start to identify and actively understand those other signals, you can present however you want to present and still able to kind of pull on those and pull on tug on those other signals, which I think in some way is a is a remarkable superpower, but in some ways just kind of reading people, but reading people on not a surface level, 
And sometimes I don't think people even understand themselves the signals that they're picking up on that identify people as in-group or out-group. Definitely. So I think if you can start to sort of look beyond the facade of what people think, you can both present how you want to present and at the same time um, sort of try to learn these secret languages that allow you to navigate differently in the world. And it makes you better at people. And being good at people is, is the thing that'll open all the doors. I'm the person who jumps into the river with both feet, <laughs> which is sometimes maybe leads to some really chaotic mistakes. But let's go see what's on the other side of that mountain. That's maybe some dopamine-driven uh, uh, personalities. And then you have the serotonin people who are like, but we're good here. We have a good nest. And I'm like, yeah, but maybe. And let's go pop. Just, let's just pop over and explore those there. What if it could be there. better? <laughs> exactly. Uh, or just different. And I'm not even, it's not, I'm not even like, it's a strange combination because I'm not classically ambitious in the way where I'm just like, I need more money or more. I just need change and difference and the ability to explore. That in and of itself is is the reward. Even in high school, I was really good at taking tests. I was very bad at being a student because I talk too much and I'm not good at sort of the daily small work. Like I'm I'm looking at the forest. I'm never really good at looking at the trees. And it's, and I think that's always what's made me really good at taking tests because I'm able to kind of see, like zoom out and see a really big picture perspective. And I think I'm able to do that with my own life, but then also in sort of more micro situations. And I think that's a little bit of the same tendency. So it's not like there's no planning. It's just I'm doing this, but like, how does that fit into a bigger picture? And I think sometimes it can mean that when people see me saying like, oh, I'm just going to stop working at a law firm, even though I did all of this and went to law school. And it seems, yeah, it maybe seems more spontaneous than it actually is. I stayed in Paris for three and a half months. I went to Spain. Um, I wanted to sort of brush up on my Spanish, and then I wanted to learn French. I went to Nigeria for a little while, which is where my um, where all of my dad's family live. My dad and mom live uh, together in Texas, but all of his family is still in Nigeria. Um, so I went there for for a bit, and so I just kind of tried some different things, and then I saw an and uh, read about this permaculture research and agroforestry project in Belize. And it sounded really interesting. And I was like, yeah, I'll just move down there. Did you have any experience farming or I had farmed with- before actually oh, in, uh, a, uh, in Costa Rica. I'd worked on a pineapple farm. All um, right. Uh, like between law school um, and law firm, you just randomly <laughs> stumbled upon a pineapple farm in Costa Rica. Um, that was that makes during, sense. uh, during a summer in, in, at university. I kind of have a a little bit of an experimental general approach to life where I'm just like, you know what, you just try different things and then try to kind of weed away what doesn't fit or match. At that time, I had a sort of a dogma about traveling where I only traveled alone. And that was mainly because I felt like people always have these ideas about who you should be and how you should react in situations. And I wanted to say, well, how would I react if I 
today, I just want to say yes to all things I've said no to in the past. Or today, I want to respond very differently to if someone approaches me in this way. But if I had a friend with me who would say, oh, Sandra, you should respond this way or you always respond this way. And I feel like you can get trapped in sort of your own past identities. I have two questions about what you just shared. First, that approach of trying many different things or just experimenting as much as you can and having such a strong identity and and, uh, personality. Does that come from your parents? Is that how you were raised? Probably. I mean, we are just sort of the collection of all of our experiences and and, and our genetics, of course, but um, 100% is related to, to how I was raised. I mean, my my dad is an immigrant, and I think just that uh, there's got to be something sort of <laughs> genetic, uh, dopamine-driven to decide to pick up and move to different countries and, and start different lives. I don't know if there's only two ways to create a personality, but I, I feel like it might be either directly your parent raising you and encouraging you to follow this kind of path, or you could have evolved that way in um, resistance. Yeah, I mean, it definitely wouldn't have I mean? been in resistance to my background because my, I mean, my parents are both, I mean, my dad is sort of almost the classic, like school was very important. If we had to, if you wanted something, you had to make a, a real argument for it. And he had his own um, uh, auto shop um, and sort of very sort of school is important, very structured, very sort of logical thinking type personality. My mom is, she, was, she taught physics and chemistry. So of course she has also that side of her. But she, on the side, she's like this really amazing carpenter. She builds and she's always had the philosophy, her life's work philosophy, or her work philosophy was always, I can just pick up cans. Like you don't do anything that doesn't sort of drive you and make you feel passionate and make you feel energized. And she always really had this sort of foundational belief that you don't, don't build a life that's so big that you're forced to do things you don't want to do to maintain it. Over having your basics met, money, there's a marginal increase in happiness or well-being with the additional of more money. And then over a certain point, money becomes its own problem. You have to babysit it. It affects <laughs> your ability to have relationships. Mm-hmm. Like everything revolves around that. Then it also feels too much. And so my mom uh, especially has been very big on really sort of pushing that narrative that like, I mean, we have, we didn't have a whole lot in that sense, but we got to travel, spend time together, and it was a very creative, experiment-driven household also. So I would say it all comes very directly from my parents. So they had very reverse roles. And my dad, his happy place is being in the kitchen, so he kind of with joy comes home and is like, okay, I'm making some soup. We eat a lot of Nigerian food at home and and my mom was like, I'm, I don't want to go near a kitchen. I'm put on a tool belt. I got a hammer. I'm going on the roof. And But it was always like, you know, space and to explore, to try things out, to get messy, to, you know, no one had to be nice or neat or clean. Or it's just like, you know, get out and build a mud pie. And if you learn something from building that mud pie, it's way more exciting than keeping the house really nice and clean <laughs> so um go play with mud and eventually you'll start calling it clay exactly and then and that's it and that's 
And then, and then what is play? It's just a different marketing thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. There's something I think also really powerful in making things and growing things or building things like that. I'm really drawn to that on on all the all the ways where you can take something and transform it into something else and and that is also everything from chemistry and I mean everything from soaps like how do you take these ingredients and transform them to something else so all of it is in in some way connects even though it can seem like very different things but if you look at them and not take the details of like oh but this is soap making and that is farming and that is you know being in a city doing you know building on a roof and instead look at the broader principles they're all exploration and putting something together and and building sort of either ideas or putting sort of parts together and seeing how they interact and how they work and then you start to see like okay it's all actually you're doing the same thing i'm just doing it in different iterations of the same uh, same broader idea okay so you're so you're in belize how long were you there for I think I was there for four or five months, so not a super long time. And then I moved to Denmark from there. All right. Um, but that was a really, a really, really sort of big lesson in ecosystems. Like it's sort of, sort of working in a really closed <laughs> ecosystem and you kind of everything from your own trash and your own waste, you really understand that concept of there's no away. There's nothing you throw away because then it just, I mean... <laughs> It's it's true in our global context, but you don't always meet that reality because you can at least feel like you threw something away because you can put it in a trash and then you don't have to look at it anymore. But in this kind of really tight, small ecosystem that we built on the that was built on the farm, like everything that you if you threw it away that you saw it, yeah. <laughs> like it's like you yeah. you can't even pretend like you're throwing stuff away. It's like okay, the way is there if you're you know if you're using the toilet, that waste has to go somewhere. There's yeah. there's there's no no delusion about there not being any away. So that was really, I think, really helpful for me to kind of really understand, um, like you mentioned earlier, this idea of sort of connectedness of systems. And that's also where I started to, after that experience, started to really get into also systems thinking and this idea of like sort of the connections between parts of a system really being the thing that creates the behavior of the system. And and trying to understand systems without understanding those connected parts means that we always end up with really, really wrong ways of tweaking systems. And in some way, it's really just really hard to have an overview because now the systems are so complex. Like you, you grab a glass of water or coffee or tea in the morning and you've already impacted people on 15, 20 different continents, thousands and thousands of workers. And I don't, I don't think we have, uh, I don't think we've evolved to really be able to deal with complexity on that level. And then so we just kind of hide behind like, okay, we're just, I'm just going to tweak this little part, but it's, but it's just unhelpful. That's um, an opening uh, that you encountered in, in the farm in Belize, but could you identify how that started impacting the rest of your life and how you at home and with people and this kind of um, understanding of systems? I mean, it kind of, 
it informed the business when I started it, but I hadn't at that point conceptualized the business. Um, at that point, I'd moved, I got a job working at the International Rehabilitation Council for Torture Victims. Um, I got a job working there and I moved um, back to, De or not back, moved to Denmark. I had been here for a study abroad right. some years before okay. where I met my Danish partner back in 2006. We'd been long distancing. And then I was like, oh, I'm not going to move to Denmark. How many lives have you lived? A, a thousand, <laughs> a thousand more. Or on the, I hope to live a thousand more. Or, <laughs> um, but um, so then I moved here and started working okay. uh, uh, in, in that context, in international rehabilitation, uh, our torture work. Um, so working with the Convention Against Torture, I'm at least constantly trying to update like um, update the way that I see the world based on the inputs that I get. And it's a constant active process of saying like, okay, how does this change my worldview going forward? Do I have enough new data to say I need to re like to have a whole new worldview or am I just making slight tweaks to my existing worldview? But I think permaculture, agroforestry and sort of systems thinking in some way fundamentally altered the way that I understand change, um, which brought with it a lot of frustration actually working in international human rights. And, and at some point I said, I just want to try something else and try my hand at, at approaching some of, these, some of this complexity in a different way. Um, and that's when I started to work on the idea of, of Esangs. It's beautiful, really. Um, <laughs> no, it's, it's beautiful, I think. Um, how you drove from your family and your dad and your mom and your experience with law and with your first business venture and then working on the farm and then having this understanding of systems and and then taking that to Denmark, working with torture victims and having this continuity of experimentation, impact and an understanding of change and try to have the most positive impact you have on your surrounding and what you touch. And I think that's just, that's beautiful and very strong. Um, Thank you. <laughs> uh, I mean it. And, but I'm, I'm curious, you have this question and this understanding of the way we tackle change and we try to help and fix certain patterns and certain structures today namely with you know your work with the torture victims it's not as efficient as it could be and from working in this like big international system political intricacies to having the idea of working on a, on a place like Esangs and and this concept how did that come about i mean i think the work they're doing is really and that was is still really important but i think they're just different ways that you can tackle some of these issues. And then sometimes we kind of overlook other points of leverage, some other points of entry for change that, that often get overlooked and that, that personally were interesting to me. So I think in some ways it's not an either or, it's just a both and. And I think generally with all types of problems and things, sometimes we get, you know, I can and everyone would get stuck in this kind of like, but what is the right way and the, what is the wrong way? And I think it's typically both and it's like, should we be changing systems or individual behavior? Both and, you know, it's all almost always both. And, um, but for me, 
there was just other ways that I wanted to have impact on complex systems. And Esangs for me it is is really just a melting pot of ideas and approaches and things that are interesting to me and and it's almost a little lab laboratory where I get to in real life say like well what does it mean to approach business in this way like what does it mean to have this type of relationship with suppliers what does that mean what does that look like what could it look like before I start saying all the ideas that I had about oh you just do this you just do this and then sort of dealing with the practical realities of okay what does that actually mean how does that work we still have lights that have to be cut on and like you know how do you balance all of that in real life in real time has been a really interesting and exciting um experience but i mean that's what he says is for me it's just a laboratory to to try to flesh out ideas of how to change and impact complex systems and it can seem a little bit strange that I'm doing that in the hair and body care, <laughs> but uh, but I think it's a, it's almost in some way a perfect industry to do it in because it, I mean, this industry impacts all of the issues. I mean, if you think of any, you can think of any global issue from deforestation to plastic to climate change to misinformation to, I mean, you can name an issue and like hair and body care touches on those issues. And also most people use some form of hair and body care. So you have an opportunity to sort of reach out to everybody or touch a, a wide variety of people. So it's a sort of a products that are relevant to a wide swath of the population that have a decent chemistry background. Um, I'd been making hair and body care products for a long time, just as a hobby. I learned how to make soap in a jungle in Central America um, and then I'd come back and studied sort of like the modern chemistry of soap making because I thought it was such a fascinating uh, form of chemistry. Um, so I was like, okay, this is something that I can do. And it's something that I can kind of really work on everything from trade and production. I can use my hands. <laughs> I can um, sort of use my head all at the same time while trying to figure out a puzzle of actually running a business because sometimes it's also a bit it's easy to sit on the sidelines and say like businesses should just do this and they should be run this way. And then when you're like, okay, what does that actually mean? And how hard is that actually to, to do in, in real life? And how do you set up a, a business that looks different, that works differently that, and then also still runs because the big thing for me was like, um, we're not running a charity. Like it shouldn't be a charitable organization. It should be something that functions and that's sustainable in the sense that it's, um, it has its own economy that runs, but that runs differently. And then how do you really make that a reality? And that's been, it's been a bigger challenge than I ever, ever would have thought jumping into this with my, you know, overexcited, naive uh, <laughs> self. But that's how you jump. That's how you You jump. need to be a bit naive and excited and, exactly. and have some energy to jump. But then you need something else to kind of land on your feet. Exactly. So... So, but it's, um, but it's, it, it, it has been, and it still is just a constant learning experience and a place of exploration. And I come at it a bit different than I think a lot of beauty brands and that kind of thing, because my interest is also on the way people think and the way systems are structured. How long have you, have you been in business now? Uh, 11 years. 11 years. How have you managed to 
what have you been doing differently from whatever you were comparing yourself to? I mean, we all kind of intuitively understand that things can't grow forever and we bump up against the finite uh, resources in our physical space, the planet we live on. Like there's just limits to it. And there's a book also limits to growth, which kind of <laughs> parses out some models of what would happen if we <laughs> if we continue to grow in, in the ways that we've been growing. A book from the 70s, also a big systems thinking book. How does that translate into the store? And we can't grow bigger than this space. Like our production is set up. It's not, we're not small because we haven't made it big yet. Mm. We're small by design. Like we've designed a production that naturally limits how big and how far it can grow, mm -hmm. which forces us to slow down, which forces us to be small. And it forces us to to sort of change the way that people interact with us in the same way that a uh, slow food movement forces customers to say, okay, I can't have all vegetables all the time because they're not in season. It kind of forces customers to kind of deal with the reality of like, okay, all products just aren't available all the time. There are times when things are sold out, things, times when things are not sold out. And it's not, I mean, of course, apologize, apologize, but it's something that's built into the model, reframing how people shop and 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 purchase we also do a lot now to 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 change the space into a, a bit of an ex exploration space where people can come in learn about the supply chain and and the people who make the products and the products themselves and where they come from is this a seed is this a nut or so people start to have a full relationship to the products that they buy and builds empathy suddenly shea butter isn't just something you buy and smear on as a story behind it. You've seen the nut, you've seen that, okay, there's this people that have to make, transform this nut into this butter. That's a process. And then you start to see like, okay, if I did that, I'd also want to be paid yeah. to do yeah. that work. Cause that's a lot of work. It's not just something that happens. Like shaved nuts don't fall out the tree and become butter. Mm -hmm. Someone had to turn them into that. If people can visually understand that and see that and demystify the entire process I don't think people are inherently assholes when it comes to also the way that we buy the con like the harms that our consumption has on the world around us. I think it's just really hard to conceptualize it and to understand it. You're doing a great job with that on social media as well with like documenting and and with a lot of humor. So like I I would invite anyone to go and follow you because it's it's very very interesting to see and like you learn a lot and and it's yeah, you've It's it's really inspiring. Could you tell us a little bit about the name? Isings is the name of a brother that I lost in a car accident in 2004. So it's just sort of a nice way to have his name close. I mean, he's a big, it was, was in some ways still is a big part of my life and sort of who I am as a person and um and a and a continues to be a big influence in the person that I am and the and the things that I create. So it's just a nice way to kind of have his name close where, where I get to say his name constantly and other people also, and it gets to travel around. Uh, he gets to be a part of this journey as well. And my last question is, um, what is something you wish people asked you more often? Ooh. <laughs> Is something I wish people ask me more often. 
I don't know if a specific question, but sort of concept that I wish people explored more with me and generally speaking is sort of how do we as individuals, where are we in the feedback process of these broader systems and what does that mean for what we do every day and for, for sparking bigger change? We are also a part of these feedback loops and and everything from the small actions to the big actions to all the things that we do are constantly feeding into this complex system. It's the micro stuff that we have really big impact on from everything from the, the clothes that you wear to the way that you present. And it's something that also that impacts a lot how we show up on social media is sort of this idea that, okay, you're constantly sending out signals which become a part of how people see and understand reality. It almost handicaps us, this model of change that is so big. Like we want to look at a big problem like climate change and then we start almost there. And in some way it's the, it's the end result of a series of events that start much closer to us. What attitudes do I have daily? that are feeding into that system. Maybe that's where I should start to change. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was a pleasure. This was my conversation with Sundra Essien of Isangs. We recorded this episode in the Isangs store in Copenhagen and robed in a fragrant cloud of essential oils. I highly recommend you visit Sundra and the store either in person on their website or on Instagram where Sundra and her colleague Moiti make sustainability accessible, exciting and fun. Please rate and review this episode on your platform of choice and don't forget to subscribe so you get new episodes in your feed every two weeks. Have a lovely rest of your day and bye for now.